Hello, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, a weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C. covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. The university fell under Title IX investigation on August 8th, and while this summer we didn't have specifics regarding that particular complaint, Title IX experts were able to tell us that it was most likely regarding any internal issues or a student complaining about how their sexual violence case was mishandled. So you have more details about the student complaint now. So after filing a FOIA, which is in regards to the Freedom of Information Act, which can provide us uh, various types of documentation, we learned that this particular student was citing issues that they found within this Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities, as well as different cases where they felt they were discriminated against on the basis of sex. So one of the pieces to this complaint was that the student who had experienced an incident of sexual violence um, both felt that their case had been mishandled in areas of the hearing board process, where they alleged that their assailant had had more time to bring materials forth to the hearing board, and they had shorter amounts of time to do so. But they also raised concerns about being in the same classroom space as their assailant and discussed difficulties that they had uh, reaching out to the disciplinary office and making arrangements for either a no-contact order or simply being placed in a different class or having their assailant placed in a different class. When did this all go down? This particular complaint was filed on October 28th, 2016, And as I mentioned before, the actual investigation was launched on August 8th of this year. So it can actually take several months for an actual investigation to open up, but the complaint could be filed anywhere from four months to a year before. And do we know any details about who filed this complaint and who had these problems with SRR? At this point, we don't. Um, Receiving this documentation from OCR, there were several things that were redacted, so we don't know the student's name, we don't know any personal information, and we also don't know the details of the assault. You talked to different people about this allegation. What were some of the more alarming aspects of this case? Experts were really able to provide me with a more in-depth perspective on what it would look like for both an assailant and a survivor to be in the same classroom setting as well as sort of going into the emotional stress that it would cause the student. I spoke with Aaron Bowe, who is the founder of Prevention Culture, and he was able to tell me a little bit more about what the situation would look like and how he thinks universities should handle it. Yes, it can definitely be re-traumatizing or continue or add to the emotional trauma to be forced to see that person again and be forced to be, be, in some sense, it kind of, very directly counters what we're trying to accomplish. Like to get one's education, I have to be in the room with this person. You know, that is, that is almost a, almost maybe one of the most direct ways of saying this is inhibiting access to the education I'm trying to receive is I have to see the person who I feel violated by and emotionally traumatized by. And in the coming months, you'll be keeping an eye on the case as it progresses. I'll for sure be keeping an eye on this. I'm here with reporter Sarah Roach, who's here to talk about student experiences with eMERGE. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about the reporting process? Yeah, Leah, thank you so much for having me, first of all. So I've interviewed over 15 students, 10 of which were eMERGED by University Police Department, and they all feel like their qualifications for eMERGED did not need them to be sent to the hospital. So what were students saying were the circumstances when they were being eMERGED? 
So a lot of students said that they were emerged in the wrong place at the wrong time. Students have said that they were emerged outside of restaurants or especially outside of Thurston Hall, where they said they were seen as a target by University Police Department to approach them and ask them questions. If UPD sees any sign of intoxication, then they're required to emerge the student. So in talking to these UPD officers, what were they saying in terms of approximately how many students are being emerged each week? So the UPD officers did not give an estimation of how many in total are emerged each week, but what stood out the most is that at least one student is emerged unnecessarily each week, according to what one of the UPD officers has said. And when you're saying these students are emerged unnecessarily, what does that look like? Kind of what is their state of being? Yeah, so a lot of the students that I've spoken with um, has have given really compelling accounts as to what qualifications they were under to be emerged, and a lot of them said that they did not qualify to be emerged. One account that stood out was a girl who genuinely tripped over her shoes, and on her way back to Thurston Hall, she said that UPD stopped her when they saw that she had tripped and asked her a few questions. Um, They breathalyzed her, and a few of the officers actually got into an argument as to whether or not she should be emerged. One of the officers spoke out and said, this girl is going to be emerged. So when she got to the hospital, she was only there for about 40 minutes when she was released. So she said that she felt very frustrated with the circumstances that she had to deal with. That's really interesting. And going off the point, too, of having students being frustrated with this process, kind of what were some more general sentiments about what students wanted to see differently happen with eMERGE and any changes they wanted to see in the future? Yeah, so a lot of the students actually, they didn't put their blame on UPD officers. They didn't put their blame on eMERGE student members. And a lot of them didn't even put their blame on the hospitalization that they received after being transported. It all kind of came down to GW policy and what's in place um, for students who are emerged and the consequences that they have to deal with even after situations where they say they don't feel like they should have been in the hospital in the first place. So for the students who are emerged, what consequences are they looking at after the fact? So after the students were emerged, they had to pay $100 amnesty fine. This would ensure that they don't have to deal with the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. This amnesty fine is a one-time only thing because GW has a limited amnesty policy. After the first time they're emerged, they will have to deal with the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. They also had to attend a couple courses that dealt with the consequences for over-intoxication and what could happen if a student were to drink too much to the point that they would need to go to the hospital again. So what did the university have to say about students being emerged unnecessarily? So Senior Associate Vice President for Safety and Security, Daryl Darnell, said that um, UPD strictly enforces underage drinking um, and alcohol abuse laws, and that officers conduct field sobriety tests to see if a student is intoxicated or is a potential harm to themselves. Darnell declined to say exactly how many intoxicated students are emerged by UPD officers each week as well as how often is a student emerged that doesn't think they need to be hospitalized, what happens to a student who is brought to the hospital, and if a doctor determines that it wasn't medically necessary to bring them to the emergency room, and if anyone besides UPD officers has the authority to mandate students receiving medical attention. A lot of the students, when they got to the hospital, they said that nurses said that they understood that they were emerged unnecessarily and they were going to try to get them out of the hospital as quickly as possible. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about the different student experiences that you heard? So there were actually a couple very similar experiences. Two people at the beginning of their freshman year were emerged in October, and in the aftermath of this experience, they both applied to transfer to different schools. They said that it was not just them, but it was them as well as other students who they applied to transfer with. Although they said that by December they decided to stay at GW, they did feel like emerge and the policy that allows these emerges to take place is um, sort of making them feel like they have a target on their back for money rather than GW looking out for the safety of the students. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on this week and telling us a little bit more about eMERGE. Thank you so much for having me, Leah. I really appreciate it. Of course, anytime. Liz Conacher is back this week to tell us about her story relating to the Department of History. I've been working on this story about a new class that is being taught next semester by the History Department. It's called Slavery, Segregation, and GWU. So basically, it goes off of what some other universities have been doing, like Georgetown or Princeton, where they look at their university's past and actually talk more openly about segregationist policies or the slavery that happened way early on um, in the university's history. So GW is doing that as well. Did you talk to any students who are looking forward to taking this course? So I talked to one student who said that that course would be really interesting to take because it's not something that students often hear about. We don't hear about GW's past with slavery and segregation, obviously, but it's something that nevertheless we should delve into because it's a huge part of GW's past and what shapes the university culture today. So students have expressed interest in that and wanting to know more, and that's something that I heard from professors as well. So who was kind of the mastermind behind developing this course and doing the research for it? So there was a team of historians and other researchers that all got together and have been doing research since uh, February of this year. And one of those professors is Philip Troutman. He played a huge role in uh, getting all of the information together and the data together that students can look at in this course that's coming up next semester. Um, He told me a lot of great stories about uh, GW's past, things that students today don't really know about, but that have really shaped uh, GW's history. And here's one of my favorites that he shared with The Hatchet. There's a student named Henry Arnold who comes from Charlestown, Massachusetts. He's a junior in 1846-7, and he helps a slave named Abram. Abram was owned by the steward of the college who was responsible for room and board. So Abram was working at the college, probably cleaning rooms, cooking food, uh, hauling wood, coal for the fireplaces, all this kind of stuff. And Henry gives Abram $14, which was quite a lot of money in cash, and a note to take to a lawyer to try to find out. Abram had been trying to find out if he were eligible under the law to file a freedom petition in D.C. courts because Thomas Haynes, the steward, was from Virginia and he had brought Abram and one or more other slaves in from Virginia and there's some laws about that. This gets found out and the students at GW riot to have Henry gotten rid of, like immediately. And that, like, first thing Monday morning when this gets found out Sunday night, 
Uh, the faculty bring Henry in, and they they don't even expel him officially. They basically tell him to leave, and he leaves. And they basically kind of barely stopped the students from rioting. The students were had an effigy built ready to burn, like a you know like a fake body that they were going to burn of of Henry Arnold. Um, I mean, this was a pretty this was a pretty serious riot, and. And this this all explodes in the Northern Baptist Press, and it was a major crisis in the in the institution's history. I mean, the, the school could have could have shut down basically. So this is being taught by Professor Stott in the history department, and he said that he had always had an interest in GW's past, uh, specifically with slavery and segregation, and wanted to see how it compared to other universities. So he was really excited to talk to me and to also get started on this. A class that he's going to be teaching. So I'm here with Liz Proventure, our culture editor, and this week she's got a story about a guy who went to GW and it just didn't work out. Yeah, so this week we have a story about a man named Danny Camp who attended GW and really came here like a lot of people looking to get into politics, but then later decided that that route just wasn't for him and he really fell out of love with the politics that he came to GW to study. Then when he did drop out, he started walking dogs and was just doing it really like as a part-time side thing while he was still looking for another job, but then decided to take it on full-time. And now in the next few months, he's going to be opening up a dog boarding business called Atlas Doghouse. And this is dogs all over D.C.? Yes, it's dogs all over D.C., but mostly in like the Mount Vernon Triangle neighborhood. That's where the business is going to be. So as a dog walker, what dogs does he work with the most? So he walks a ton of dogs. He's like known to be seen with like 10 to 20 dogs all like strapped oh to gosh. a belt around him. <laughs> and he just said that it would be easier to name the dogs that he doesn't walk because he has mm-hmm. all different kinds. And one funny thing that he said was that all of the dogs that he walk kind of mimic the personalities of their owners. So here in D.C., he said that a lot of the dogs have really type A personalities. <laughs> well, maybe more of us should drop out and we can really unleash our potential. (laughs) Yeah, it seems to have worked for him. That's all for this week. Thank you for tuning in to hear all the news happening in Foggy Bottom and around GW. You'll hear from us next week with Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and featuring culture editor Liz Provincher. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell. And music was produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks this week to Liz Conacher and Sarah Roach for joining us. And from all of us here at Getting to the Bottom of It, we're wishing you a very spooky Halloween.